Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode 52 of Hello, Fellow Kids. Greetings and salutations. I said something in the in the pause. Yay. Yeah! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, this month, we read Long Lankin by Lindsay Baraclaw. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I never know. It sounds right. Okay. That's that's how I was saying. Say, I actually my brain said bear claw, and I was like, sure. And I, <laughs> <laughs> but yours yours sounds right. It's like okay, good enough, brain. I'll take it. <laughs> good enough. Uh, yeah. So this one, uh, since this is this is our August episode, this book it takes place over the pretty much the entirety of a month of August in 1958, somewhere in. A little little village in England, uh, and so I was flipping through. I had had a copy sitting on my shelf for a while, and I I happened to flip through and saw that it was dated for August. And I was like, oh, I know what we're doing for our August episode. So then we read it. That's why we did this. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So uh, what did you think? This is gonna be an interesting episode. I hated this book. You hated it. I hated this book. Interesting. Yeah, and like you sent me that long poetic text about how amazing it was where you were sitting out in nature reading this, and I was like, it's going to be an interesting episode. I didn't say that the book was good. I said that was the right experience to read it in. (laughs) Why do you think extrapolating that you liked the book from that is such a long... I'm not... Like, like, like that's a reach. Like, no, I'm not not saying that's a reach. I am just (laughs) saying. I didn't love it. I thought it had two really interesting books in it that were trying to, like, fight for dominance, and as a result, it became not great. So I I don't I don't think very strongly of it, either. But I don't... Oh, okay. I, I don't think... We are not going to have a good episode, then. Never mind. Sorry, everybody. Um, Hello, fellow kids. This is brought to you by the letter... The letter Thanks P for, for poop shelf. No, this is... This is weird. Like, like I was reading like the reviews of uh, of the people who who loved it, and I was like, "All right, okay, see where we're going with this." Like, someone could say, "This is my favorite book ever," and I won't go. The fuck are you on? <laughs> you know, I'm just like, no, I hated it. I had okay, so I started the book. I'm like, boy, I really don't like this. Like already, but I don't know. I've been wrong before. This could turn around. It's still good. It's still good. You know that kind of feeling, but. I'm telling you, every session, I, I, I split every book up now into like seven sessions so I can finish it in like a week. That didn't work out for me because I, I started it. I was like, boy, I don't like this. But every time there was a session, something horrible happened. So it felt like Long Lankin was haunting me <laughs> while I read the, okay, I had three nightmares. I spent one night fuming all night. And that was like the section with um, the ant just kept beating the crap out of the older girl for like no reason. I mean, there was a reason, but like a conversation could have been in its place. Anyway, and one set, one session, I'm like, okay, I hated that. Turned my head. There's an enormous spider on the wall right next to my head. And so <laughs> when I finished the book last night, I was like, I'm not taking any chances. I shut the book in the garage and I still had a nightmare. <laughs> Now I can tell you about the nightmares if you'd like. <laughs> and none of them are even related to the book. They're all just like upsetting and weird in different ways. Nightmare one, um, I, it was so realistic. I thought I was awake the whole time until I woke up. But in my dream, 
um, I wake up and I sense someone's in the room with me and I'm, and I'm trying to talk myself out of it. Like, I don't think there's anyone in the room with me. I'll turn my lamp on and I'll see no one's there and it'll be fine. I pick, I try to turn on my lamp. It's not turning on. I keep clicking like the little dial. It won't turn on. I pick it up and I'm like, okay, come on, you know, like really. And then I can hear the thing moving in my room. So I scream and I throw the lamp at whatever's in my room and I wake up screaming and I just kind of laid there for a bit like, ah, ah, okay, so that didn't happen. And then turned my lamp on. It went on. Nothing was in the room. Dream number two, I was a little kid and my mom's shouting at me to like come to her right now. And I go like, she sounds mad. And I go running in there. And like, as I pass my brother, he goes, uh, I say to him, like, is she going to kill me? And he doesn't answer. And I was like, uh oh, I go in there and my mom is furious because I'd been in her room. And while I was in there, I'd been eating a bowl of mac and cheese and I'd spilled noodles and sauce all over the room. And she's showing me. It was like, why were you even in here? This is my space. You don't belong in here. How dare you invade my breath? And I just, I'm crying going, I just needed socks. I just needed socks. And she's just shouting like, I am so sick of you. When my, you hear this door open, I don't want you anywhere in sight. I don't want to see you. And I, and I'm tearfully cry out. I wish I had a mommy who liked me. And I wake up saying that out loud. <laughs> so that's it. And then the dream last night, there were, we have crows who live around our house. We see them all the time. My mom feeds them stale bread. It's great. But in the dream, there were two sets of crow families and they had nice little nests in the, in the trees. And we we're all just kind of standing there looking at them. Oh, isn't that nice? But seagulls had moved in and they had nests on top of our house and they flew over there and just started killing all the crows and then taking their bodies over to their nest to like feed their young. And those are my horrible nightmares. And I never have that many nightmares in like a week span until I read this horrible book. So you tell me causation or correlation. I don't know, but it didn't help me like this book. That's fair. I think in a weird way, that's also not the worst sales pitch for a horror book. I did write in this in my notes over and over. Who is this for? Because the horror elements were a little too horrible. And I don't mean it's graphic. It really isn't. I just mean like the human horror of it is a little, not even, okay, not a little much. It's too much. So I was just like, who is this for? This isn't for children. This is more like what you'd find in a, in an adult horror book with chil- children protagonists. The only thing that made it not that is there's no swearing. The kids say bloomin' and blimmin' and flippin' and, and, you know, no one says the F word ever. And there's no sex in it, except it's kind of hinted at. Yeah, I was just like, who is this for? This feels weird. Was this self-published? Is that why there's just not like a... Because a, a, an editor or a publisher would really try to make her edit this to is make it less horrific. Question? Yeah. Uh, no, it's published by Candlewick Press. I don't know what that is. They publish the Dragonology books, like the interactive books, but they also publish a good number of novels. I've read several other novels published by them, and they primarily publish... Uh, I think they're usually British import authors, but they are, they're a children's publisher, traditionally. But I, I definitely had a similar this, this thing where I was like, book. this, where I was like, ah, this is pretty, this is dark for a kid's book. Um, it's really dark. Oh, wait, I forgot to tell you one of the, one of my reactions is like, I just spent like a whole, like a full hour crying after one of my reading sessions of this book. So 
Nightmare's crying, spider on the wall, uh, and anger. The so. spider on the wall would not have been there if not for this book. It, it summoned the spider. Well, spiders on the wall in, in my basement room is not unheard of, but it was weird that I closed the book and was just like, boy, I hate this book, turn my head, and there's a spider. And the spider's just like, <laughs> me too, man. Yeah, like, why did Josh pick this? I didn't know anything going into it besides that I thought that the name was really interesting. Um, and it, it was. And let yeah. me tell you, obviously we're going to get into it, but the actual description of what Long Lank it is when it shows up it kind of freaked me out. Yeah, that's that was effective. Yeah. Yeah. So like, we, you notice that I'm saying that I hated it, but I'm not saying it's a bad book. Right. Right. Like when you when you said that you could understand someone saying that they really liked it, it is it. It is not a book where you're like, you know, that's poor writing, that's bad structure. You're not pointing out a ton of that, but it is very much... Um, there, there, this is there's... not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your mileage is going to vary quite mm -hmm. a bit with this mm -hmm. book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Some people are going to have a very economic, fuel-efficient vehicle, and other people are going to have a three-wheeled skateboard. I don't even have that. I just sat down in the road and said no. <laughs> Yeah, I went full Mimi. Don't like it. <laughs> oh, that kid. Okay. I was like, should I like any of the kids? Because I don't. <laughs> it's just... Anyway, maybe we can talk more when we get into it. But yeah, that right from the top, this is what we're going into. Someone with lukewarm appreciation and one going, hated it, but in a happy way. It's I also... Guess. Not angry. To be clear, it is not a short book. It's 450 oh, pages, so... That did not help the hatred. No. We'll, <laughs> we'll be here for a little bit. Our story begins in August 1958 with the arrival of Cora Drum and her four-year-old sister Mimi to the little English village of Briars Garden. They will be staying with their great-aunt Ida Eastfield, who lives in the massive, run-down Garden Hall in the swampy outskirts of town. Why are they staying with Ida? Well, their father has to focus on work, and their mother, she's not available at the moment. On their way down to the manor, they encounter a talkative local boy about Cora's age, named Roger. He warns them about Ida, saying she might be a witch before shuffling off because he accidentally tore his trousers on the broken fence where he was sitting. Cora and Mimi reach the house, which is overgrown with vines and in general disrepair. Above the door is a strange burnt wooden sculpture that looks sort of like a baby. They knock on the door and introduce themselves to Aunt Ida, who hasn't had much contact with their family in a while. They also meet Ida's dog, Finn. Ida lets them in, and the girls quickly discover that life at Garden Hall will be stuffy, to say the least. Ida has a list of places both inside and outside the house that they should avoid. The nearby church, the old well in the backyard, and a number of rooms in the house. It turns out that very little of the manor is currently in use, and most of the rooms have been boarded up or fallen into disuse. Additionally... All the windows and doors are also to remain closed at all times, unless they are coming or going. Ida really doesn't want the girls here and tells them as much. It's no place for children, so she will be writing a letter to their father to have them picked up ASAP. But until then, Ida's stuck with the girls. It doesn't take long for young Mimi to get freaked out by the house, specifically due to a large painting of an elderly man with clawed hands that Ida refers to as Old Peter. She tells the girls they'll get used to him soon. That night, Ida reads an old letter from a man named Will, her lover, who was a soldier back at the Great War. Meanwhile, Mimi wets the bed she and Cora share because there was no way she was going to walk past old Peter again in the middle of the night. The next day, Ida sends Cora and Mimi into town to send the letter to their father. On the way, they run into Roger again, along with his younger brother Pete. 
They begin to show the girls around the area, starting with a massive white tree filled with items hanging from its branches, which legend says is a way for travelers to indicate to others about good places to get handouts. Then they head to the church because it's an abandoned off-limits building, so of course they do. They go around putting flowers on some old graves, but the fun ends quickly when Cora sees a figure watching them from a distance. He's scarred and disfigured, but Cora recognizes him as old Peter. He disappears before anyone else can see him. So my very first sentence <laughs> of my notes says, this is a book full of gross, unpleasant people, and I already hate it. Just right off the bat, just start, starting, starting on that foot. Starting strong. <laughs> my first note was that, so the book switches between three perspectives, uh, Cora, Roger, and Aunt Ida. And I honestly, I was surprised to see her name show up as a perspective character, just because I would have figured that it would have just been from the kid's perspective, but having the adult perspective, I mean, it was primarily used as a, 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 a lot of foreshadowing of like, they don't know the truth. I wish they, you know, I wish they weren't here sort of a thing, but. I yeah, know, just... I don't really know. I don't think she added much except to make me hate her more. Yeah. Yeah. When we're introduced to her and we get to know her a little bit more. Um, I've never rooted for a character death more. <laughs> so I was just like, boy, you need to die. And like my, it's a good thing I'm not doing the synopsis this week because you would be like, okay, we're going to put a moratorium on the C word. You're not using it anymore. <laughs> like, okay. Fair. Like, I'm going to have to start beeping you on those. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I will say as long as the book is, it would have been a lot shorter if it, weren't for Roger, because Roger's, all of Roger's sections are just filled with him just going off on just tangents about, like, his friends or people in town or things that he did last summer. Just Yeah, I was waiting for that to come around and it didn't, and I was just like, shut up, Roger. (laughs) I don't know, it was kind of nice just to see one person who's, like, (laughs) well-adjusted. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, sure, you're a little talkative, but at least you have, like, decent things going on in your life at some point. Yeah, you're the only one not depressing me right now, so go ahead. Tell tell me about that friend of yours who's named Two Boy, and that's never ex- explained. <laughs> yeah, it was just hearing him, I'd be like, I'm sorry, what? Like, every time. Okay, and, like, an interesting thing um, I wanted to point out of this book is when Cora shows up and, like, Roger meets her, he clocks right away that she's from London and that she talks differently. And everyone clocks that, like, later on, and they're looked down on because uh, Cora and Mimi are two London slum kids. And for anybody who doesn't know, post-war England, like, in general, but particularly London, was very poor. Like, it, they weren't doing—they didn't get the post-war boom that we did over here, mostly because they were the fighting ground, you know? So many places had been bombed out during the Blitz. And they didn't have the money to build it all back right away. But um, then, you know, when they kind of started to, where Cora and Mimi live, they live in uh, Limehouse. A lot of those, like, slummy places. I think she even um, mentions later that some of the places have already started getting pulled down to put up, like, I don't, I think they might have been council estates, which is, like, um, like uh, the projects here. It's, mm-hmm. like, public housing. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is... This so it's like interesting bits of history, what, what I find interesting, like sprinkled yeah. in here. I don't know a ton about like post-World War II uh, Europe or anything like that, but... Uh, <laughs> I consume so much British media, but I know it too well. <laughs> I will say at least it's not uh, Revolutionary War America. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> let's never do that again. 
maybe the Felicity books from. <laughs> we well, would have to American do like you'd have to do the whole box set as like one episode. It'd be kind of fun, actually. It actually it wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be a bad idea to do something like that, like like a a string of really short books all together. Yeah. Because we did do that one time where we did the the two self-published books or whatever because they were just such nothing books that we could squeeze them like, in. Let's do that, but with something books. Yeah. <laughs> no, American Girl is really good. And they don't they don't have a post-war London girl because duh, American Girl, but they do have like a currently in World War II girl. Do they not have like a um? Because like the the Dear America books have like a. Mm-hmm dear world like offshoot because there's like cleopatra or something like that oh no no they 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 stuck with america okay oh uh and i i also i didn't write it down but i was thinking like i have never been in the bed with someone who wet the bed and i can't imagine it's a good experience yeah i and, also have not like i was n- not like a really i think i'd a hitter like not now <laughs> But, like, if I'd been another kid and woke up and, like, my sibling had pissed all over the bed that I'm in with them, yeah, they're going to get hit. <laughs> that's, so, that's so gross. She couldn't get out and just squat on the floor? Like, she just beat the bed? I did throw up in the bed I was sharing with my brother on a vacation once, and he claimed some got on him, but he did not have to be washed up, so I don't think it got on him. He was just worried it would get on him. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd had too much snacks. Ah. Uh, I think that's all I have, though. Just kind of wanted to establish the difference between town and country. That everyone in this book is, like, gross and unpleasant. Well, they are British. Oh, shit. <laughs> he said it, not me. <laughs> alienating, alienating our British listener. Yeah. <laughs> like, asshole. Like, and you're like, don't you mean arsehole? Ah. Guys put an R in there for no reason. <laughs> okay. Anyway, let's let's keep this moving. Okay. The kids continue exploring instead of sprinting home because they're psychopaths, I guess. Peter shares a variety of mostly pointless anecdotes about the town and its citizens. They notice some strange words carved above the gate to the churchyard. Cave bestium. They head back to Garden Hall and notice the same words carved above the door there. Aunt Ida returns from shopping and the boys quickly rush home. Back inside, Ida shows the girls what she bought, an array of new clothes to wear until their father returns for them. The girls are thankful and wonder if Ida might not be so bad, even if she is the black sheep of the family. The next day, the girls help with some chores around the house, and Cora discovers Aunt Ida has a pet parrot. Cool, I guess. She also finds a piano and tries plunking out some old tunes. As she does, she hears a voice. It's a woman singing, and it's coming from right near her. The voice sings a strange tune about a creature named Long Lincoln. The parrot cries out, and the voice stops. Cora freaks out and runs from the room. The girls meet up with Roger and Pete again, and Cora tells them that she absolutely has to post the letter to her father today because their adventure to the church prevented her from doing so earlier. Roger's like, cool, want to go to the church again? And Cora's like, sure, why not? Mimi is the only... Why did that happen? Okay, go ahead. Mimi is the only sensible one who doesn't want to go, and even when Cora forces her to come with them, she won't step foot in the building itself. The rest of the kids go inside and notice that the place seems to have been disturbed, but by someone other than them. The candles are knocked over, and there are muddy footprints everywhere. They explore for a while until until Cora notices just how long it's been and rushes out to check on Mimi. 
She's not there. The boys spot her in the road, rushing back to the manor. When she gets there, she tells Ida about seeing old Peter at the church again. Ida also discovers that Cora hasn't sent the letter yet, and furious about both those things, she beats Cora. Ida then seems to be overcome with grief, saying that it's too late. Ida definitely knows more than she's letting on. Yeah, no, I had that reaction, too, of like, excuse me? We just established that we need to go to town. Why are we going back to the church? Yeah, I'm like, why? Y- you've been there. You know it sucks, and it's gross. Why not go to the store and, like, I don't know, like, browse and, like, look at things and... Like, you know what? This wouldn't have happened if uh, Ida wasn't so fucking cheap. If she'd given them a penny to at least get, like, a little bit of candy, because, uh, like, or whatever freaking equivalent of to British money back then would be, like a hay penny or something, that would have bought you a little bit of candy or something. Those kids would have been like, I'm not mucking around in old church. Who cares? I have money. I'm buying candy. And we have to mail this letter. You know? Yeah. This all could have been avoided. Or if she'd, like, walked them over her there herself and then brought them with her for the clothes and see, okay, let's see if anything fits you, you know? Like, made an effort. I get she didn't ask for these kids to show up at her house, but, like, she wasn't prepared for anything. That's like, oh, I thought when you didn't show up, you just weren't coming. And I was like, you didn't have anything ready in the meantime? Yeah, and she, was also she does. Like, she's like, she's like, they're supposed to be here on, like, Saturday, Saturday or something. Saturday, they show up on Monday. Yeah. And then she's like, well. Because the guy giving them a ride was flaky. They didn't show up on Saturday, so they're never coming. Good luck. <laughs> I'm not going to look into it. <laughs> yeah, all, she's very much like, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to notice it or whatever, and it's just going to go away. And it's like, yeah, that's worked out wonderfully in your life, you stupid bitch. But there's, I was like looking at this so many ways where I was like, you could have avoided so much of this. Like, what was stopping her from going to London and staying with them for a while and watching the kids while the dad, you know, worked like right nothing's keeping her here she could have brought her stupid dog with her and he'd still be alive sorry for the spoiler but yeah those people who don't like reading things where the dog dies the dog dies in this so don't read it yeah she she could have (laughs) there's so many preventable things with this fucking story that helped me hate it more and i get that like if they did everything right then there'd be no story but at the same time, I kind of like the stories where, like, they do everything right and stuff still goes wrong. Or there's stuff that's just still outside their control. Yes. And everything goes wrong. Where this, it's like if everyone sat down, like, okay, we're going to have a talk. This is why all the nail windows are nailed shut. This is why we do this. And then Cora's like, blimey, pip, pip, cheerio, let's go back to London. And they're like, smashing idea, old sport. And then they, and they go. <laughs> uh. Instead of this. Like, they all should have, when the dad came to visit, they all should have just gone back with him. Mm-hmm. So, sh- the song that she hears over her shoulder, it's an old ballad that I don't know exactly how old it is. It's at least a couple hundred years old. It's a an old ballad that the the translation that she's using is Long Lankin. And it's one, this, this is one of those stories where there was already this existing thing, and then she used that as, like, a springboard to develop her story around. So it's originally just this short little ballad that she then extrapolated information to create the story of the novel. I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but it's, it's, it, it says on the, it starts on the cover with said my Lord to my lady as he rode away, beware of long Lankin that lives in the hay. And then it's this thing about it, basically this boogeyman of some kind coming into a house and um, 
they like sacrifice a baby and then Long Lincoln is killed and that's like that's where all of this eventually comes from. Yeah, if I'd heard that singing, I feel like I'd immediately have left. <laughs> right? <laughs> Okay, because she's just like, what is that? And then she hears, like, Ida and Mimi on the stairs. It was like, so it was neither of them, obviously. Um, yeah, I'm done. I wrote nope in my, in my notes. <laughs> Shall we? Yeah, go for it. Cora finally goes to town and posts the letter. Then all four kids go to Roger and Pete's house, which is up near the rest of the village. There they meet the rest of the boys' large family. They play there for the rest of the day and agree to come back tomorrow. Early the next morning, Cora hears a thumping in the house, and she sh- and she soon finds that Ida has hidden the painting of Old Peter. However, Cora wants to get a closer look at the painting now that she has seen Old Peter at the church and knows that there's more going on in this little village than she first thought. After spending another day at the boys, Cora sneaks out of bed in the night to find the painting. She shuffles her way through the strange maze of forgotten rooms and hallways, at one point slipping and falling down a small flight of stairs. She continues searching and comes across a woman sitting alone in a room. It's not Aunt Ida. The woman looks at Cora and points up at the roof. Thunder claps and the woman disappears. Cora flees the room and soon comes to the place where the portrait is stored. There on a block of stone next to old Peter are the same words, Cave Bestium. She then begins to notice other things in the room, namely items that would have once belonged to a young boy. Cora is startled out of her investigation by Aunt Ida finding her in a place where she very much should not be. The next day, Cora and Mimi don't show up at Roger's house when they're supposed to. Roger decides to go check on them, but his mom asks his dad to go with him, uh, mentioning that she noticed bruises on Cora. On the way down, Roger's dad comments on the gate outside the church. It's called a Lich Gate, and is supposed to be the transition point between the Holy Churchyard and the Unholy World outside. They pick up Cora and Mimi. Cora is looking worse for wear after her fall. Roger's dad takes Mimi back to the house where Roger and Cora have some time to themselves, which allows Cora to tell him about the portrait. Roger figures Cave Bestium is Latin and suggests they talk to Father Mansell for a translation, which Roger does the next day and learns the phrase means, beware of the beast. Back at the manor, Cora takes another look at the portrait and notices additional words. Petrus Hillardus, 1584. She hears the ghostly singing woman again and asks for her name, to which the ghost says, Kitty. She returns to the living room, and Ida is furious at Cora for leaving Mimi alone for even a second. Cora asks who Kitty is, but drops it when Ida presses her. Meanwhile, Roger is walking through town and passes the house of Gussie, a strange old lady who most people avoid. Gussie tells Roger she needs him to help recover her cat, who has, got, who has gotten stuck inside a furnace in the backyard. Roger is absolutely certain he's about to be cooked up and eaten, but can't think of a way out of the situation and goes to help. It turns out the story is totally true, and Gussie is very thankful for his help. As he goes to leave, Gussie begins saying what sounds like a bunch of nonsense. She refers to Ida Eastfield as the last Garden, name drops one Father Hillard, makes mention of Will Eastfield being found dead in a field with a shotgun beside him, and says that Long Lankin is back. I expect Gussie's nonsense isn't as crazy as it sounds, but we've still got a ways to go before the truth is revealed. So, I think it so becomes... So, the introduction of the mom is, like, the first character I like. Yeah. Yeah, I think the boy's mom, she's, like, as good as a parent as you're gonna get in the 1950s. Yeah, especially one that's trying to raise, like, five kids. I know, like, she's stretched so thin, but, like, I don't know, I think she's pretty good with them and, um, like, talks to them, and she's the one that they get a lot of information from, but but she, like, admits, like, 
I don't know a whole lot because they never told me when I was a kid. It's just anything I do know is stuff like I had to like lurk around and over here. Yeah. So I kind of liked her for that and for just straight up telling them stuff. I was just like, okay, you're, you're all right. You're actually like having a conversation with the kids, which no one else can be bothered to. Yeah. One of the big things in this story is withholding information and keep trying to keep people in the dark because it, they think that it's like safer that way or like they're ashamed of the truth when in fact that, you know, being open and honest is kind of the only solution. Yeah. The feeling becomes greater later on, but there is very much the idea that this book wants to be two different books. I think I mentioned that earlier and I've seen some reviews say it and they kind of, they kind of pinpointed something that I had been feeling, which is that, you know, it's got this, ghost story this boogeyman story undermining or uh, as like the underpinning and but then there's also all of this like small town just people hanging out you know playing in the summer kids playing in the summer and uh just little little quirky people in town i don't know why i'm picturing it as being like a a, a like a gilmore girls little village but like 50s style cuz it's not really just but thinking. like but there's especially later on there's a real tension between those two things because one of them has a lot of like there's the dramatic tension of it but then there's no tension in the other part of it and it it kind of whiplashes you a bit because it'll be like ah things are getting really spooky it's like and then we played outside in the woods for two days and it's like yeah but you're being chased by a boogeyman shouldn't you be focusing on that but like it just will kind of ignore that for a period of time or then it'll just go into really long uh, explanations of like the village history that may or may not have anything to do with the current problem of something coming and like stealing children. And it just, it, I feel like it kind of, there are parts where it lacks a sense of urgency because it's trying to do both of those things. And then we went to cricket. Yeah. That there's a whole, there's section. a whole, there's a whole cricket game coming up soon. And I'm just like, you know, like there's a monster, right? <laughs> There were so many times where I just wanted to grab, like, Roger by the shoulders and shake him and say, get with the program. Because she's, like, urgently trying to tell him, like, a thing, like, you know, she's like, Cora's putting stuff together because this affects her life. So yeah. she's like, I care about this. Well, he's all like, what you think we're going to have for dinner? You know, and just like, this an asshole. Like, she calls him out later for it, and it's awesome. And I was like, thank you. I'm so glad you said something, because I was ready to just kick him in the shins. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I was a kid in the story, if I was a grown up, I would not be hitting anybody. But actually, I'd be hitting Ida. But that's another story. I wrote threats against her in in this so much. If you read it, you'd be alarmed. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. I even threatened you. You threatened me because I because I picked the book. Yes. I said, if this story doesn't end with Long Lankin killing Ida slowly and painfully, I'm punching Josh in the dick. (laughs) Was you're like, you know, great. Oh, and uh, she annoyed me by like, taking down the painting. It's like, you were so against taking it down in the first place, and now, like, the damage is done, and now you're taking it down. She's the kind of person where, like, all the horses would storm out of the barn, and she'd be like, quick, shut the doors, you know? It's like, God, you're such an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Just really just hate her so much. And I don't even think she needs to be this way. I don't know why she's written this way. And plus, it always annoyed me every time, like, she got her little, like, moment to talk. With, and she's in there as Ida Eastfield. And I'm like, there aren't any other Idas. She can just be Ida. <laughs> Eastfield doesn't need to be there. God. Yeah. 
it's so weird that we're we're like we're already up getting close to the halfway mark and we're not that far in my synopsis but it's because the back half is so exposition heavy like when it starts talking about like the uh Obviously, we're, when we start we're, getting into the legend, when we, yeah, when we start getting into the legend and and the history of the village, and I'm just like, oh my god, there's so much like there's so much world building here, but how much of it did we need, and did we need it presented? Like, could we have spaced it out? Well, um, it seemed like it was so much, but when it, when I was when I was synopsizing it myself, I was just like. A lot of this is repetitive. Yeah, I it's guess more that's like, more of what could, it is, is they talk about it a lot, but it's really just saying the same thing, and each time they maybe add, like, one new bit of information. Yeah, add extra bit. It's more like confirming, like, okay, you heard it from this source, but here's it also from this source with the addition of this nugget of information that's actually important Yeah, that maybe you didn't notice because you were busy going, like, okay, I, I know, okay, Afro Rush has stabbed a baby. Like, okay, got it, you know? Yeah. And you pricked him with a pin, and I'm like... Okay, that's not a very good murder weapon. <laughs> okay. Oh God, whatever. <laughs> back, back to it. Back to it. Roger takes Cora to the woods to play, where they encounter some of the less kind local boys. This sucks for Cora, but it also gives Roger a chance to tell her that he learned what Cave Bestia means. The next day, Cora and Mimi are greeted with a wonderful surprise. Their dad is back. Their mother is still away, but surely they can come home now, right? Well, their dad goes to talk to Aunt Ida, and things aren't quite so simple. It's here we learn that Cora and Mimi's mother has been in and out of mental health facilities for quite some time, telling a story about her and a girl named Anne from when they were young. Ida knows all about this story and believes there's much more truth to it than Cora's dad does, but things still aren't totally clear yet. The gist of the talk is that the girls still can't come home, so as much as Ida doesn't want them at the manor, she's stuck with them. Cora, feeling like a burden on everyone, gives up eavesdropping and goes to bed. A couple days later, the whole town gets together for a local cricket match. There, Cora gets a chance to talk to Father Mansell herself. Cora has loads of questions about the town and what's happening, and is able to get some good information out of him. Namely, the ruins in the forest where the boys like to play used to be the old rectory, which was built by the Gairdens at the same time as the old church, but it burned down in the 16th century. If Cora wants to know more, she should check out the old church, which will have a list of all the previous rectors. Back at the house, Mimi is tasked with feeding the parrot while Ida and Cora do some work in the kitchen. When a half hour passes and Mimi hasn't returned, Ida freaks out. I mean, you were the one who said not to leave her alone, Ida, so I don't know what you were thinking. They eventually find Mimi. You literally set this up. (laughs) They eventually find Mimi, who says, quote unquote, she took her into a little house within the house, and that she recognized Mimi's stuffed soldier, Sid. Mimi promised not to say more than that, and Ida suggests the girls go hang out with Roger and Pete for a while. Cora convenes with the boys, and they figure old Peter must have been Father Peter Hilliard, one of the old rectors. They head back to the church where they find a list of rectors, with the most recent entry being one Jasper Scapelhorn, who left in 1948. Outside the church, they see old Peter again, as well as a number of ghostly children, both begging to be saved and warning them to leave. One of the ghosts looks suspiciously like Mimi. Despite this being even more haunting than previous sightings, Cora is less afraid because she realizes that old Peter is just there to warn them. About what, however, she still doesn't know. That night, Cora can't sleep. She looks out the window and sees something moving through the grass. Crawling on all fours like an animal is a long, pale man with a gaunt face and pointy yellow teeth. It sees her. It watches. It waits. 
Like, I think he's freaky. I do think that Long Lankin oh, is, is a really freaky image. Terrifying. It's the combination yeah. of him being, like, he's he's described as being, like, unnaturally tall and, like, skinny and stuff, but it's also the the... I imagine him not crawling the way, like, normal people would, where they would crawl, like, on their, their knees, but, like, yeah. his, almost, like, his legs bent at, like, an unnatural angle to have more of, like, an animalistic sort of... That's exactly what I was picturing. And I hate it, like but a kind it's of a, also Like, good. kind of a crouch. Yeah. Like, if he was climbing up the side of a building. Yes. That's how he's crawling along. Yeah, that's, that's how I was picturing it. And I was picturing him in my head as, uh, there's, like, an actor... That Guillermo del Toro uses oh, in a lot Doug of his Jones? films. No, no, no. Someone else in, uh, he's a Spanish actor as well, but he has like, um, I think he's double jointed everywhere or has some like kind of like abnormality about his body. So he frequently plays horror movie villains just because he can move his body in a very upsetting ways, basically. Yeah. Like he played Mama in the movie Mama, but that's exactly, he, ha- he's basically. I think so. Yeah, he's also in Crimson Peak, and yep, yeah, uh, he was the Slender Man in the 2018 Slender Man movie. Everyone you can think of who was really scary in like m- a lot of modern horror, it's him. I think he also was uh, played the witch character in It Part Two. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was Doug Jones because Doug Jones is also kind of. He's he's similar and he does a lot of like horror stuff. Different and stuff, movements. But he's also, I know yeah, what you, he played he played the white man in um in uh Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. So and, he uh, he also is good at movement, but it's not quite like what the guy I'm thinking of, Javier Botet. It's not quite like him. Yeah. Yeah. He's it's so scary. <laughs> I was just like I feel so bad that it's just like he's so he scares me so badly. I don't can't even describe what it is, but it's just this very swaying kind of bent kind of movement that just looks like a tree blowing in the wind but it's a person i don't it's just so upsetting so that's who i was picturing i think he's really tall too yeah so. if he's working with del toro he's probably an absolute sweetheart because like most people that del toro yes. works with are really really cool people <laughs> okay i'm looking at he, he yeah he's got he's double jointed he has extremely long fingers with a tall fin build at six feet seven inches, so he could totally play Long Lankin in the film version of this. And I think the film version of this would be really good, like toned down on Ida's like abuse and just like maybe she gets slapped in the face once, but like we're not gonna throw her into shit. We're not gonna give her a black eye or split her lip or anything psychotic like that, you know? Not that like oh it's okay to slap her, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We'll, we'll tone that down and. This would be a good movie. I was kind of the whole time just like, this would be a good movie. I'd like this. You saying that is really interesting because around the time that I finished reading this for the podcast, I was also reading a totally different book, different genre and everything uh, for my book club and having a lot of the same reactions. There's an ant character in that that I don't really like, and I thought it would be really good as a movie, but I wasn't necessarily sold on it as a book, and... It's just weird how it parallels. What book was it? Now I'm curious. Uh, it's called How to Set a Fire and Why. And okay. it's it's just about this really nihilistic teenager where, like, she's all mopey all the time, which she has reason to be because her, her dad's dead and her mom is in a psychiatric facility. Um, so she has to live with her aunt. I swear, I did not pick these, like, with any, like, there was no reason for me to be reading these at the same time. Um <laughs> 
And then she's like, she decides that becoming an arsonist or whatever is like, you have to burn down society so that you can rebuild it. And like all these fat cats, you know, they, you know, they don't know what it's like to have nothing or whatever. And it was one of those movies where like, I could see somebody like, she's too old for it now, but I could see somebody like, um, uh, Haley Stanfield or something bringing a, a more human element to it where I would like engage with it better. But like, as it's written in the book and being written by a dude, it just was kind of insufferable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you just stop trying to write women. They're not good at it. There's, there's exceptions, but not many. There's a reason why I have a tag on Goodreads. That's men who think they can write women. Here's, here's a pro tip for men who are going to write women. Um, talk to some women first, like engage with them as human beings. <laughs> Start there. <laughs> if you have a whole paragraph about their breasts, take it out don't need it don't need it it always comes up it never fails just stop okay okay back to this yeah back to this this is the part you were saying that you liked uh the next morning cora decides to ask roger's mom some questions since aunt ida seems to have no interest in telling her anything about the town or what's going on she figures someone a bit more open to cora's very existence would be more helpful she first asks what happened to Aunt Ida's son, Edward, who she only knows disappeared long ago. The truth is, nobody really knows, but whatever happened seemed to push Ida's husband, Will, to suicide. It was after these tragedies that Ida became reclusive and subsequently shunned by most of the town. She's hesitant to answer any more questions, but Cora is persistent and persuasive, so the exposition dump continues. During the war, two sisters were evacuated from London and taken to stay with Ida. The younger girl, like Edward, disappeared. Roger's mom brings out an old newspaper clipping about the incident, and the girl is revealed to be Anne Swift. Swift happens to be Cora's mom, Susan's maiden name, meaning that she may have stayed with Aunt Ida way back when, but Cora doesn't know anything about an Anne in the family. The next day at the manor, Father Mansell comes around to drive Ida and Mimi out for a day trip. While Ida gets ready, Cora asks Father Mansell about the Reverend Scapplehorn, and Mansell says he gave most of Scapplehorn's papers and writings to Ida for safekeeping, since the Gardens are so closely tied to the history of the church. He tells her exactly what sort of container they'll be in, meaning Cora has her next fetch quest. Ida and Mimi head out, and Roger and Pete arrive shortly after. They go exploring in the yard and notice that it looks like something was climbing on the roof recently. Odd. They also find what Cora at first thinks is the old well, but it seems like something different, maybe a cellar? They then head out to a nearby abandoned bunker where the creature Cora saw outside the other night finds them. They are able to escape, but notice it stalking parallel to them just on the other side of the stream, because he cannot cross water. Cora knows at this point that whatever the creature is, it's hunting something smaller than her or Pete or Roger. It wants Mimi. The next morning, Cora sees Aunt Ida leave the house much earlier than usual. She takes this opportunity to go root around the house some more and comes up with a box of Scapplehorn's papers that Father Mansell mentioned. It turns out that Jasper Scapplehorn was an avid historian of the Garden family and the village, and these documents shed a lot of light on the town's history. The creature was once a sickly man named Cain Lankin, who found himself involved with a witch named Afra Rushes, who was convicted of killing Lady Gairdon and her infant son. Afra was sentenced to death soon after, and Lankin re-emerged as some sort of monster. Old Peter eventually tried to kill Lankin with fire, which resulted in the destruction of the old rectory, and Peter's death soon after. Before Cora can piece together more of the puzzle, Ida returns. Cora heads up to Roger and Pete's house, and smuggles in Scapplehorn's journal. 
There's some sort of bug going around, and it's gotten to one of Roger's siblings, so the local nurse, Smallbone, is called in. Roger and Cora pour over Scapplehorn's journal, which includes an account written by old Peter. Apparently, Lincoln had been convicted of killing the Garden infant along with Aphra, though there was no proof he was present. He was later found apparently dead in the swamps and was due to be buried on unholy ground. Reverend Hilliard felt guilty about not giving an innocent man a proper burial and brought Lincoln's body through the Lich Gate to be buried properly. Doing so, however, seems to have tied Lincoln to the world of the living. Hilliard also mentions a servant girl from the Gairdon Manor named Kitty, who bore an Ill- illegitimate Gairdon child. Hilliard f- fears that nobody will be able to undo the damage he has accidentally done, which led to him attempting to burn Lincoln in the rectory. Things are starting to come together. Yeah, this is around the time where I was like, who is this for? Yeah, like, what kid wants to know about, like, the history of the local rectory and then the was, the, the awful... Like, yeah. Like, burning witches alive and... Yeah. And, and like, all of that. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not really, like, one of those, like, collect your pearls, think of the children kind of people, but I kind of was with this where I'm like, I don't know. Even though the whole point of this story is to, like, don't keep this from children. They should know what's after them. There's, like, a quote from a Terry Pratchett book called Carpe Jugulum, and he says in it that um, you need to tell children stories about monsters so they can learn that monsters can be stopped. They can be beaten. That's why you tell them the stories. And so if they'd known about this, Cora never would have cracked open that window. And I thought that was going to come back like he comes in through there because she loosened it. Right. But uh, he doesn't. Instead, like as, as you're reading, I was like, oh, there's a lot of emphasis on the roof. I missed that when I was reading, probably because I was hate reading it. Um, could have done without the graphic descriptions of vomit. Yeah, I, of I, I took that bit out of the uh, synopsis for you. And, um, you know, Dick moved to be like, okay, I'm taking your sister out and like, she's going to get all this ice cream. I'm like, why are you telling her that? Don't tell her that. God, you suck. <laughs> I, I see, I don't think she brought, like, Mimi along out of any kind of favoritism. It's just like, I'll feel better if she's not around this area for right. a while, so I'm taking her with me. Yeah. But to also not bring Cora, probably because she didn't have any money to... Oh, plus she's all bruised up, so she'd be like, yeah, this is the kid I abused because I hate her. And everyone's like, you're a psycho. <laughs> Which kind of what everyone in the town's saying, because yeah. um, when she goes into stores and stuff, they're kind of like whispering and looking at Cora like, oh my god, look what that baddie old woman no one likes is doing to this kid. But this is like in the before time, so no one's calling like social services because they don't exist at this time. Yeah, I don't yeah think. we're still a ways from a real transition away from uh, corporal punishment. Right, yeah. They're still getting hit in schools. Yeah, the, the, the boys even talk about like which of the nuns like hurts the worst when they like hit. That's their idea of, like, trying to buck her up a little bit, and she's just like, I don't want to hear it. Don't worry, I get beaten, too. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I mean, she knows that the kid's mom's in the loony bin, so you can't... I mean, using the parlance of the times, like, they would have called it that. I wouldn't call it that now. But, like, she knows that her mom is, like, hospitalized right now, so why, why are you being so mean? What would it be at this time, like an asylum or a sanitarium or? I think, yeah, I think you're right. Sanitarium. Not quite the same thing as a sanatorium. Sanatorium is where you go for your TB. Sanitarium is when you're, you know, uh, haunted by uh, a horrible experience. (laughs) (laughs) That happened to your little sister. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. um, Long Lankin can't cross water 
And I was like, okay, these people came from money. They have this big house. They know he can't cross water. Why aren't they redirecting this water into like a moat around their they... house so then he can't get to the house at all? Uh, there's an old SpongeBob meme where they're trying to figure out what to do about a giant worm that's attacking the city, and there's just a knight in the crowd that goes, We should dig a moat! And like, that's not a bad idea in this case. No, it's not. I don't know why they didn't do it. I mean, um, she couldn't do it now because, I mean, it, a lot of, like, these old families at this time, their money just didn't really exist anymore. And yeah. that's why a lot of these, like, big houses, uh, sold. Yeah, she just needs to sell this house and get out of this area. If she sold, sold the house to, like, a land developer, a lot of, like, cheap flats were, like, getting built at that time. Or the things were, or the houses were converted into a bunch of apartments. That happened to a lot of these country houses yeah. in England at this time. Well, they even talk about one of the houses that they visit later on got split into a duplex because they decided it was like right. too big and unwieldy. Um, exactly. You had to pay to try and heat that. And yeah. Like, you know, and keep it like clean or from getting mold and stuff. You know? Yeah. There were actually a lot of details about this book that I I read, but I didn't consciously like understand until I was writing the synopsis like i had a much clearer yeah. idea of where they were when i was going through it the second time like so to clarify she lives outside of town and she lives in like a, a bit more of a like a swampy area and when the tide comes and goes it will kind of it'll flood some of that swampland which is why uh there, there are several references to like was the tide in or out or at the time because it kind of it, it delineates where like lincoln can move to a degree yeah so i will say I think that this was fairly ambitious for a first novel. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and I think that some of its, some of its failings, not like it's not a complete failure. Um, but I think some of the parts that I am not a huge fan of, or I think didn't work too well are just, it's almost the idea of just biting off more than you can chew for like your first novel. Like this is, this was not, yeah. this was not a safe project to do as your first book. <laughs> And I can I can respect taking that chance, um, even if it's not like a ho a home run. Well, I mean, it's well written. I thought it was. Um, I can't help my visceral hate. Like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't have a choice in this. It just happened. Oh, also, um, when they I just looked at my notes and <laughs> it said that when she uh, saw the mon when Cora sees like the monster outside, I wrote, "I'm totally picturing the Babadook." don't know if you ever if you ever saw that movie i did see the babadook yeah 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 just for the like the i was just picturing him in those clothes like the babadook clothes but still like guillermo del toro's dude that he puts in all his movies like that's okay. how i would have dressed the monster okay um i was i was giving it more of like a more of like a stretched golem sort of situation so you can really see the paleness of like the the limbs and like maybe like like he's super skinny and, like the like you can see like the bumps of the spine and stuff. Oh, okay. You were picturing him naked. I was picturing him clothed because gross. <laughs> hey, do you think all of him is long? <laughs> My he's friend, he's a leper, so yeah, he... <laughs> wouldn't it be falling off him? Uh, let's hope that that part fell off first, just so we don't have to like picture it. You know, it might have. I don't know. My friend came over this morning. I don't morning. know a lot of... Oh, no. What? No, you, you're going to say you don't know a lot about leprosy. I don't either. 
Yeah, and then I did. I never looked in, into any of it. I so. think most of what I know about leprosy comes from leper jokes, like you know, like yeah, give me a hand, sort of thing. Or here's the here's the tip. Yeah, know? but no, my friend came over this morning and we watched the 2015 Fantastic Four movie, which is god awful. But when you're talking about like Long Lake and being like all stretchy, all of a sudden I was picturing like. There's a really gross scene of Mr. Fantastic because he's like, he's being like studied. And so he's, he's like just woken up and doesn't really have control over his powers. And so he's like, he's naked, but he's like covered with like a, like a a sheet or whatever. But like his arms are like, they're each like 15 feet long and just like stretched and like kind of like hanging. And it's, it's gross and I don't like it. It's a really bad movie, by the way. Like I was, I, it was, it was one of those it was, it was one of those ones where it's not even like it you can't even have fun with how bad it is you're just so you're so disappointed that you're spending your time watching it wasn't the rotten tomato score for that like less than 10 i it's, remember yeah, it was it very nine percent very... yeah okay that's what i remembered i was like oh that's really bad yeah um my favorite description of it and this is really accurate actually is it feels like a 100 minute trailer for a movie that never starts like the pacing oh, wow. of it, the pacing of it is just all set up all the way until the end. It's really bad, <laughs> which is a shame because like the on- the only saving grace that I was hoping for was Michael B. Jordan because I like Michael B. Jordan. But they gave him nothing to do, and they did not they did not lean on his like natural charisma at all. And it just it was so everything about it was so not good. Anyways, Long Lincoln. Yeah, Long Lincoln. <sighs> Cora comes down with whatever sickness has been going around. I just realized that she's down with the sickness. <laughs> uh, I was going to do it bad like that guy at karaoke goes, Ooh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone's seen that video, but it's, it's funny. So Cora comes down with whatever sickness has been going around and has visions of the ghost children begging to be saved. She also overhears Ida reveal that she shouldn't have married Will because she was in, she was instead in love with his brother James. While recovering in bed, Cora hears Ida drop something on the floor, and when Ida goes to pick it up, she finds the box of Skeppelhorn's documents that Cora hid under the bed. Ida decides she must take Cora and Mimi back to London herself as soon as Cora is better, because that's the only way they'll be safe. She believes that with them gone, the curse will end with her death, the manor will be swallowed by the swamp, and things will return to normal in Briar's Garden. Cora recovers enough to go with Roger and Pete to visit Mr. Thorsten, whose ancestor worked in the rectory with, whose ancestor worked in the rectory with old Peter. He knows about Lankin, so there aren't really any secrets to be kept here, except from Pete, who they send outside to pick berries so they can get somewhere without him. Thorsten reveals that Ida's brother, Thomas Gerdin, was also a victim of disappearance when he was very young. He also mentions that Gerdin that the Garden House likely has some secret spaces like priest holes, which were places to conceal holy men of a frowned upon de- of a frowned upon denomination should people come around asking questions. Peter comes back inside and the conversation comes to a halt, but Thorsten suggests they come around tomorrow for more answers. They do. While there, Mrs. Thorsten begins singing the same song Kitty's ghost sang to Cora, which just so happens to be the legend of Long Lincoln. When Cora points this out, Mr. Thorsten mentions that Kitty was found dead in the swamp, presumably trying to rescue her baby from Lincoln. Nurse Smallbone comes to check on Mrs. Thorsten, who sits bolt upright and proclaims that he ate her brother. 
She mentions tying one of her brother's old rags around the white tree, which apparently means offering a child up to Long Lankin. Mr. Thorsten takes the kids outside and explains that his wife is Gussie's sister, meaning that the brother who disappeared was Gussie's brother as well. He tells Cora to ask Aunt Ida about all this, since it's her family at the center of it. But Cora laments that Ida won't tell her anything. Um, reading that section, why is Pete in this book? <laughs> right. Um, he's pretty useless and annoying, and he contributes nothing. I don't. I don't know. I don't know why Pete's there. Especially since they don't bring him into their investigation, so kind of what's the point? Plus, he's actively holding them back when they want to hear more, but he comes barreling in, kind of wrecks it. But um, Thorsten was like my second favorite character after the mom. I'm like, cool, another adult. Because he also tells them things, and he isn't unnecessarily cruel to them. And he's just like, cool, the bar's so low. <laughs> And I really had at it with uh, Father Mansell because he he was, you know, he took Mimi and, and Ida on their day trip, whatever, like dropped them off. And he was supposed to pick them up and he didn't. So Cora kind of ends up like sitting in a barn crying, waiting for them to come home. Yeah. 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 I wrote like Ida's late because Mansell forgot to pick up an elderly woman and small child, forcing him to walk home two miles in the dark. Why does everyone fucking suck in this book? Like, you had one job. Like, <laughs> go get them. Oh my god. You horrible man. Like, everyone just treats everyone else as such an inconvenience all the, through this. It's so uncharitable and mean that it just it contributed to my irritation with the story. Just like, why isn't anyone just decent, like, a little bit? So I think that's why I was so grateful to, like, the mom for, like, not sucking. Yeah. And uh, Thorsten didn't suck. And uh, honestly, his wife didn't either. She's just, you know, you okay there, Grace? All right, Al. <laughs> and they did that back and forth a lot. I was just like, that's really sweet. I actually like that. But I don't know. Maybe this is what, like, British village life was like. I don't know. Oh, um, have we covered that the problem started because um, they buried him in the churchyard, which they shouldn't have because he was a murderer? Um, so why didn't they just dig him up again? <laughs> There's all these solutions. Like, you could have just dug him back up again and then put him in the crossroads and beheaded him and all that crap like you're supposed to do, according to, like, folk superstition, you know? But they're all just like, oh, well, my kids are fine, so who cares? I thought he, I thought he, like, because, like, the, the coffin was, like, already shaking when they were, like, first burying him, so I, I assumed that he got out pretty quick. Right. And at that point, if he's free, I don't know if you'd be able to, like, bury him. Well, they could just basically do what they ended up doing at the end of the book, you know? Yeah. Like, for how they, I was I was like, that's all it took? And no one put that together? Jesus Christ. Yeah, let's, um, let's actually get into how, how to defeat him. That's the, that's the part of the next section here. Well, go for it. Okay. Cora and Roger go to see Gussie, who first shows them some of the gooey love poems Mr. Thorsten wrote for his wife. Then Cora asks her about Lincoln, and gets a clearer image of the man before the beast. He was unnaturally tall and not very easy on the eyes, so he was an outcast who mainly lived in the swamps and eventually developed leprosy. He fell in love with Afro Rushes, who had just been taken in as the garden's wet nurse. She performed a ritual to cure Lincoln of his disease, which is how the 
Gearden Baby and the mother were both killed. Afra was then t- tried and jailed in the old church, where Lincoln would visit each night and try to free her by digging under the walls. Before he could reach her, she was taken away and burned alive. Lincoln's body was found in the swamp soon after by Peter Hilliard, leading to the botched burial ritual that, combined with the attempted cure for leprosy, created the creature known as Long Lincoln that feeds on the life of young children to remain immortal. Gussie also recounts her brother's disappearance, which was a bit of sibling bullying gone too far, and once they realized that there was actually a monster coming for her brother, it was too late, and Gussie ran away instead of trying to save him. Back home, Cora comes upstairs in the morning and finds Ida at the table, crying over her copy of The Pilgrim's Progress, and lamenting all the things she wishes she'd done differently to not be in the situation they're in. She just got back from the old church, which she has been going to for decades to visit her son's ghost, and sometimes she sees her brother Tom's as well. His disappearance was not so unlike Gussie's brother's, in that the older siblings hid from Lincoln instead of trying to save the little one. You know, there was a time she thought this was all over, back when there was a huge flood in the swamp that should have wiped Lincoln out, seeing as how he can't go in the water. But he persisted, and sure enough, when Susan and Anne came to stay at Garden Hall, Lincoln took Anne as well. She then produces a letter written to her nearly 20 years ago, where Susan apologizes for Anne's death. Susan blames herself because she opened the door to let some air in, not knowing why Ida wanted the house locked up at all times, and this is what allowed Lincoln in to take Anne. The only thing she has left of Anne now is her stuffed soldier, Sid, which Mimi now carries. At the end of the letter, Susan begs Ida to send a letter to her parents telling them it wasn't Susan's fault, but Ida never sent a letter, so Susan spent her whole life blaming herself, which is why she's been in and, in and out of mental institutions for so long. Ida then recounts the time she met with Jasper Scapplehorn about Lincoln. It's mostly a clearer retread of the speculation about how Lincoln came to be in his current state of being, but the key revelation is that Jasper suspects if Lincoln were to pass through the Lich Gate in the other direction, that may be enough to untether him from the living world. This would also likely free the spirits of the children who are tied to Lincoln as well, and probably put old Peter to rest, as Jasper suspects Lincoln consumed Hilliard's life force during the fire to survive. It seems that attempting to kill Lincoln forfeits the life of the killer, meaning that someone else must sacrifice themselves to finally defeat Lincoln. And with that final bit of backstory, it's time for the end game. Yeah, this is the section where I started crying and couldn't stop because the Gussie story, because I was just picturing my little brother right. and being in that situation. I wouldn't have tied him to the tree. We would have had to have like a hypothetical older brother to have done that. Right. But like she's trying to get him loose. And uh, like she said, like her hands were bloody from trying to figure out the knots on this rope. But her brother was really good at ropes. And then Hilliard had to show up and be like, you, you need to run because he's going to get both of you. Yeah. If you, There's nothing you can do for your brother right now. You need to move. So then she ran away and has lived miserably by herself in squalor. Ever, I don't, I don't, how do you recover from that? You can't. You yeah. Can't. That's the thing. Like he, he takes these children, Lincoln, but ruins everyone else's life in the process. Yeah. Like, it's not just one victim. It's just everybody. Uh, yeah. The part that I think hit me hardest was Susan's letter just reading, yes. like, some someone say that I'm not at fault for my sister's death. And no. I opened a door. That doesn't mean yeah. I should be, tre- you know, like, and no one defended help. her. No. Like, her mom wasn't talking to her. Her dad was saying that, like, Annie had been his favorite and he was going to leave the family. And he did. He did leave. And and then, like, Cora's like, so did you send the letter? And she's like, no, I didn't. And I was like, 
wanted to jump in the pages and just start beating her. Like, yeah, I'm so mad at her. I was like, I just hate you so much as a person. You're a horrible person. She's lost a lot of people, but I don't think she learned anything from it. It is just horrible. And she could have prevented what happened to those poor children. What happened to little, little Annie and mm-hmm. like ruining Susan's life. And she's like, Oh, I wish I'd done something. So I'm like, you're in the situation now. Do something different. Yeah. Okay. Like you've been tested how many times now? You lost your brother. You lost your own child. You lost your niece. I know she never brought up the niece. I was like, no, you're to blame for that one. She's like, I feel like this is my fault. I'm like it is. It is your fault. <laughs> like she, I don't, I think she needed like a mean neighbor Mara sitting there going like, no, you, <laughs> you suck. Do something. You like not even do better. Do anything. Right. But uh, I mean, she comes through at the end, but like not enough for me to like suddenly champion her. Right. I was like, no, I still hate this woman. And I could I could sense what was happening as we were reading. And I'm like, good, good. Like the whole time. Yeah. This was just another what another section where I was just like, who is this for? It's all just so grim mm-hmm. and miserable. Yeah. I was wondering at one point, I was like, what if this book had been written by Catherine Arden? Uh, I think it'd be shorter. <laughs> And not quite as miserable. Because, like, she can spook me. <laughs> yeah, she's good at that. Yeah, and, like, I don't like Ida either, to be clear. I thought that she was miserable and, uh, you know, she got in her own way a lot and she did not learn from her past and her mistakes and stuff. But I did find her interesting you know, to have this woman that you even see from her perspective, she's waiting to die. Like, her whole life is just, well, someday I'll be dead and all this will be over anyways. And, like, yes, that's miserable. And, like, that doesn't necessarily make for, like, an exciting read. But I was I was kind of, I was surprised to see that perspective in a book for, again, like, who is this for sort of a thing where I yeah. was not expecting to see that in a book for presumably, like, 12-year-olds. Right. I was just there, like, I can help you along. If you want to die that bad, I'll gladly kill you. I don't like the way you treat these children, and I don't like you. And she'd just be like, oh, offended by that, I think. Because I don't think anyone's ever told her to their face that, told her to her face that they don't like her. Yeah. They just whisper behind her back. Like when she donated those nice things for the, um, the raffle. Yeah. And, and like, she like showed up briefly and like everyone in the tent's like, Oh God, it's her. You know? And it's like, Oh, you accepted her thing. Just fine. You can't say like, hi, this is Eastfield. Like really quick. You can, you couldn't do that. Yeah. You had to yeah, whisper about her all whole, obviously. So, the whole social dynamic of the, the town just like it. Yeah. It's that whole, like, uh, cause they talk about it at one point, the, the idea of like when bad things happen to you, it's not just that like something bad has happened to you. It's like, other people feel uncomfortable with you now because it's yeah. like, ooh, you're the what one that I that say? awful thing happened to. What do I say? And then it just it it's it it just perpetuates and all of a sudden nobody talks to you. And then people, you know, act like you don't exist and stuff. And then you you wonder why, you know, in America we have thousands of people on the street that people are you know, just don't want to acknowledge existing because bad things have happened to them. They're not there because like things went well. Right. There are there people put up notes in our apartment complex that are like, talk to the like, here's the email for the mayor. You should tell her about the homeless lots. And I'm like, why? To make them go somewhere else just so that we don't have to see them? Like, they're not harming anyone by existing. And you, the fact that it makes you uncomfortable that, you, that there's somebody living in misery, misery near you, like, 
do something about it then. Don't just try and, like, make the image go away. Like, it's one thing if, you know, if there are, like, if people are getting, like, attacked and beaten, but if they're just, if they just are existing, suck it up. Or do something to help them along, but don't, like, don't just be like, let's just ignore, like, like make it so I can ignore the problem easier. It, it ruins my day to see somebody like that, and I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, it's pretty much it, right? So I kind of felt bad for her for that, but not really. <laughs> I had more empathy for old Gussie. Yeah. Felt horrible for her. Just the absolute squalor she lived in. But uh, even though just living with like this horrible memory on her and like her sister being with the man she was in love with and all of that, she's still took in all those kitty cats yep to look to look after them not particularly well since they're all pretty bad off but i was wondering if they were bad off anyway but she took them in right it's like i'm not gonna give up on you you you're weird but i had to run away from someone before who i couldn't help but i'm not gonna do that now i'm gonna help all of you and you know with like her shattered mind and everything she's still trying to impart help and advice to these children Mm mm-hmm and I like that she had that instinct, that impulse to do that. So the um, sympathy I probably should have been feeling for Ida uh, did not go there. I felt the worst for this poor woman mm-hmm. who uh, arguably saw the same amount of um, misery as Ida has, but lived with it differently. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, do you want to take us home? Or did you have anything else? No, we can we can we can go home. All right, this is action packed, you guys. This whole last part. Yeah. It, yeah, it flies by really quickly, especially when you're synopsizing it. Yeah, my my synopsis here like, is Jace. probably shorter than some of the other sections we've just talked about, but there's a lot. It's it's a substantial. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay, Cora. Ida, Roger, and Pete are in the manor, with Cora having just informed the boys on what Ida told her, when Finn starts barking. Mimi, sleepwalking, begins descending the stairs. Behind her crawls Long Lankin, who is able to enter the house through a hole in the leaky roof. He moves very slowly, giving our heroes enough time to put themselves between Lankin and Mimi. Cora asks Mimi about the little house within a house that Kitty showed her, and Mimi points them towards a, towards a wall panel that reveals a hidden room. The kids cram themselves inside and hide from Lincoln, leaving Ida and Finn outside. They find a second hidden door in the room that allows them access to a hidden passage and continue to flee from Lincoln. At one point, Roger almost falls down some stairs, but mysterious hands rescue him. They continue on and run into Kitty, who begins a ridiculously long monologue slash song lamenting the loss of her child to Lincoln. Cora realizes she was... Huh? I said sorry. I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but like... It really was long and ridiculous. Yeah, I was just like, how how long are they going to let her sing before they say, excuse me, there's a monster chasing us? And how would you film that? Because she's like doing that. And then you hear like Pete's like he's in the background trying to find the way out. He's like, Cora, are you talking? What's going on? It's literally almost two full pages. (laughs) He's like, what? (laughs) Well, she's still like, they pricked the baby with the pin, you know, like that crap. Yeah, now that you're the way you sp- it's actually pretty comical now. I didn't think it was funny at the time, but it's pretty funny now. Uh, Cora realizes that Kitty was probably the one who saved Roger on the stairs. 
The group continues on and everyone climbs out of a trapdoor in the yard, except Korra, who returns to the house and finds Ida holding an axe, as well as Finn, who died protecting the kids. Lankin finds the boys and abducts Beamy. The others regroup and pursue Lankin into the churchyard. They find Lankin's old tomb, which is now his lair. They head down inside and find Lankin holding Mimi atop a massive pile of bones. Roger digs at the base of the pile, shifting the bones and sending Lankin falling towards them. They pull Mimi from his grasp and run out of the crypt and flee into the swampy area surrounding the massive white tree. Lankin pursues from the trees and approaches Mimi again. Ida attacks Lankin with the axe and chops off one of his arms, sending him falling into the water. The group then runs back to the Lich Gate, everyone exhausted. Roger takes the axe and smashes the chains, holding the Lich Gate closed. Then the kids stand out on the outside of the gate with Mimi to lure Lincoln through. Lincoln emerges from the swamp and approaches, then realizes where he is and refuses to step through the gate. With the last of her waning strength, Ida grabs onto Lincoln and forces him through the gate. Lincoln stumbles and falls, then crumbles away, the centuries catching up to him and turning him to dust. The ghosts of Hilliard and the children who watched this final battle begin to depart as well. Then the white tree begins to tilt, and the wind whips up around it, and it crashes into the swamp, sending the hanging artifacts of lost children down into the depths below. Mimi goes to Ida, who lays unmoving on the ground, one hand on a grave inscription. The time of the singing of birds has come. And then it just ends. And then it just ends. Yeah. I was like, well, then what? How do they get home? Yeah, who are they living with now? <laughs> Probably uh, Roger's family, don't you think? Yeah. That poor woman, like, she needs more kids to look after. Oh, there is a sequel to this, but it, it has a dual timeline of, like, Afro rushes back in the day, and then it's four years later from... Um, oh, okay. So Cora's, like, 15, and um, Mimi's 8, but and Mimi can see Afro rushes, because... They're living in this house now for some reason with their dad. And uh, I, I was just like, oh, God, I don't care. I wouldn't want to read it for the podcast. and I wouldn't read it anytime soon. But I think I'm still open to the idea of maybe reading the sequel at some point. I was reading a review for it and someone groused that, like, I don't care about Pete's dating life. Why are we devoting time to this? And I was like, <laughs> oh, she's still doing that. She's still doing that. OK, she's still on that Pete thing, huh? You still. Yeah, she, she really wants Pete to be a thing. But yeah, I was really surprised at how it just it just gets to the bottom of the page and then there's nothing more. Yeah. It was a weird ending. Um, Super weird. Yeah, so I guess that's Long Lankin? Um, Long Lankin. I feel like our discussion of it also just kind of ended, but like that's what the book does. It's um, what it does. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, I I didn't actively dislike it. It wasn't it was not my favorite and I'm not going to like I'm not going to defend it as like being one of the best books we've read or anything like that, but I I didn't have as negative a reading experience as you did. I'm not going to say it was the worst book we've ever read. I just hated it. Yeah. What do we give this? I don't know. That's what I was sitting there thinking like I'm giving it one star for myself. I'd say like just average it between the two of us and then that's the and then that's what we give it. It'll probably be a two then, because I was giving it like a low three. Sounds fair. And again, this is one that I think, I think the experience of this one is going to be a lot more subjective than some of the other ones that we've read. Like we've read some books totally. where it's like, where it's like, I don't see how anybody could really dislike this one. Or some books where it's like, there's, this has no audience. Like this definitely has an audience. It's maybe not in the age range that it's intended for, but there's definitely an audience for this book, and it, it does some things pretty well, even if it stumbles on some other things. So 
uh, we don't, despite it being two stars, I don't not recommend it to everybody. I think it's just very much a like, you're going to have to know that it's your sort of book. Totally. Yeah. I, I'd say like two stars, but don't quote us on that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. So next month, we're going to be reading a different spooky book. And I'm excited for this one. We're reading Empty Smiles, finishing off Catherine Arden's seasonal spook series, or whatever it's called. <laughs> seasonal spook series. Um. Yeah, wow. Finally at the end of that. Yeah. And then what we- kind of sad, though. I know, right? End of an era. Yeah. But yeah, so that one's- that will be, uh, that'll be cool, because it will- it will just have come out, like, it comes out in, like, mid-August, so. Um, Yeah. Okay. Hello, Fellow Kids is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh. Music provided by Ben Ash. You can visit him at benash.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at hfkpodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at hfkpodcast. And we will be back in September for the final Small Spaces book, Empty Smiles. Bye! Bye!